Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Think Compliance. Everything Compliance is the only podcast in compliance featuring the top roundtable of compliance commentators. It includes Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors. First, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? As I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, I'm always looking for new podcasts. If you have wanted to start a podcast but were at a loss as to how to do so, please listen to a message from today's sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business. And One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode with the full gang. This week, we conclude a special two-part podcast. And in this podcast, Matt Kelly talks about Elon Musk and the SEC, and Jonathan Armstrong weighs in on the UK Serious Fraud Office's decision not to prosecute individuals in Rolls-Royce and the GlaxoSmithKline corruption cases. Everything Compliance is the only roundtable podcast in compliance, and it's a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, back for another round of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance gang is Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance and founder and editor of Radical Compliance, Jay Rosen, uh, Mr. Monitors with Affiliated Monitors, and Mike Volkoff, founder of the Volkoff Law Group. Gentlemen, uh, first of all, uh, welcome on the first day of March. Uh, it's certainly a lion here in Houston, and I hope your weather is equally March-like. Ours is just broken. It was beautiful. But still come to England. We need your dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've got uh, really a, some interesting topics today. And we're going to take a geographic lineup starting uh, in the east and coming west. So Jonathan Armstrong, we had a really interesting announcement I think towards the end of last week uh, from a serious fraud office that they were not going to uh, or they were closing their files on individual investigations ar- around Rolls-Royce and GlaxoSmithKline. Both of these companies paid very large dollar fines for admitting to having engaged in bribery and corruption, GlaxoSmithKline, GSK in China, uh, Rolls-Royce to a triumvirate of uh, international and corruption enforcement authorities, Brazil, the United States, and of course, um, most significantly to the serious fraud office in the United Kingdom. I think that many in the compliance and anti-corruption practice space really uh, scratched their heads at how the SFO could have uh, closed their file with uh, files with uh, no individual prosecutions, particularly in, uh, in light of the uh, Americans, the U.S. Department of Justice having uh, brought charges against some people involved with the Rolls-Royce um, uh, corruption uh, enforcement action. So what does it uh, look like from uh, your observation in London? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I share the tone of what you said, Tom. I mean, I think it is um, mildly perplexing, let's say, as, as an understatement. Rolls-Royce, perhaps, in some respects, 
more so than than GSK. But if we recap very briefly on Rolls-Royce, as you rightly say, <coughs> Rolls-Royce entered into a DPA with the UK, the US and Brazil. They paid the UK government 497 million plus costs, the US 167 million dollars, Brazil 25 million dollars, and they said that their costs were around 123 million sterling. So <coughs> Rolls-Royce, the corporation, have paid out a fair amount of money. But one of the other things they did as part of the DPA is they said that they were going to share details of the involvement of various individuals. And they said that they'd started disciplinary proceedings against 38 employees and that 17 had left the business. And one of the other significant parts of the investigation, I think, in the settlement is they said that they had made available the complete email accounts of more than 100 current or former employees and that they had examined and made available data to the SFO relating to 330 million documents. And you might remember that one on one of our earlier podcasts, I talked about a conversation that I'd had with the previous director of the SFO, uh, David Green, who was really quite chipper about all of this. The SFO had, he said, bought a new supercomputer to do some big data analytics. And the impression that you were certainly getting, uh, which would seem logical, is that if you've got 30 million documents and a whizzo bit of kit that is able to find needles in haystacks, then uh, individual prosecutions must surely follow. Now, to state the obvious, it's slightly different getting a corporation or a company agreeing to a DPA versus getting a prosecution against an individual on, uh, you know, beyond all reasonable doubt. And I guess we should also say, for fairness sake, that under UK law, everybody is innocent until proven guilty. And as of stating the blindingly obvious, if you don't prosecute them, you're unlikely to find them guilty. But having said all of that, we do know that some of the emails were not pretty. You know, for example, one of them said, I told and then named a Rolls-Royce employee in Russia. I told blank on Monday, I do not want to see any of this stuff appearing in an email in future. If he does it again, I'll bring him back to London so we can give him a face-to-face -face scrubbing. Now, that, of course, an email like that doesn't stand up a criminal prosecution on its own. But it's at least surprising, I think, that if we've got emails like that in the public domain and maybe another 29.99 million of them that may or may not be as interesting as that, it's surprising, at least, I think, that, the, that we're not seeing any individual prosecutions in the UK. And I underline the in the UK because you'll remember that this whole 
DPA and investigation touched, uh, and I'll take a breath, Indonesia, Thailand, India, Russia, Nigeria, China, Malaysia. And we do understand that at least some of those countries, Malaysia might be one, will be pursuing their investigations into individuals, you know, as uh, as it, just as it takes two to tango, then it generally takes two to set up a bribe scenario as well. So in many jurisdictions, the UK included, accepting a bribe is also an offence as well as giving or offering one. And so we anticipate that there will be uh, prosecutions in other countries that will follow the evidence that the SFO has gathered and, and, and shared amongst others. But it's still, I guess, somewhat surprising that what looked to be such a big plank of the previous director's regime has been uh, discarded uh, quite quickly by the new director. Um, and it's sort of perhaps even more surprising when you think that at the moment the SFO is effectively operating without a general counsel. So the prior general counsel under David Green days left. The new GC has been announced, Sarah Lawson QC. I don't know her, but I hear, hear from people that she's regarded as safe pair of hands. Uh, she's only been a QC um, uh, since 2017, but she's been a barrister since 1990. But it's a, it's a slightly surprising decision, I think, to make for an organisation where its senior legal officer is about to uh, assume post and, uh, and to make a decision like that in the interregnum. But um, I personally think that the GSK investigation is perhaps a little easier to read. It's uh, an investigation that was launched in November 2014. You remember that this is a case that could almost make a film in its own right. It arises through, um, I mean, effectively it comes to public prominence through the arrest of a uh, guy called Peter Humphrey in China. And some of you might recall the pictures of him looking very wan in a in a uh, orange boiler suit in China. He was a private investigator that GSK had asked to assist them. Um, there was all sorts of sordid tales of whistleblowers and sex tapes and uh, bungs and various allegations. And as you rightly say, um, GSK have paid uh, substantial amounts over the, to the Chinese authorities, I think, for 80-ish dollars, 480 million, sorry, dollars and 20 million to the SEC. There may still be investigations ongoing into GSK, um, both as a corporation and again against some of the individuals involved. The wording here is, is slightly interesting that it talks about effectively prosecutions uh, not being pursued when it is not in the public interest to do so. And perhaps there's a sense here that GSK have suffered enough given their culpability and given the high amount that they've already 
paid in China. So perhaps, perhaps that one's slightly easier to read in that it is thought perhaps that GSK have already been punished for the same offences, or, or, albeit in a different jurisdiction. But, um, but, but, but certainly they, the, the Rolls-Royce one is at first blush somewhat perplexing, particularly given that such a high volume of documents are involved. And as we've said before, emails are quite often the perpetual witness to corruption. Matt, you have a uh, question for Jonathan? I, I do, Jonathan. I was just intrigued. Um, I get the idea that the new director of the SFO, Lisa Osofsky, um, maybe she wants a clean slate and all of that. But anytime I hear about these kind of reviews with the SFO, I keep going back to the sort of evergreen issue that I think about that there are people in parliament or people in Theresa May's government or any government that might be in power in Britain that they always want to look at the SFO and consolidate it or weaken it or do some sort of bigger overhaul. And I'm just wondering, like, do these two things fit together? Like, where did this come from? Or in my more cynical conspiracy theories, is this coming from any fear that uh, the government might try to defang the SFO? So let's pull our own teeth out first. <laughs> I mean, I personally would would hope not. I think uh i'm 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 not a card carrying member of the theresa may fan club but having said all of that she probably has other things to do at the moment rather than dismantle the sfo if it were one of those uh, i mean the other thing to say is that we know that the sfo have also continued a discontinued a bunch of other investigations and they're not making those details public. So this is possibly the tip of the iceberg, or it possibly is the majority of the iceberg. We don't have enough transparency from the SFO to, to know the answer to that. I'd be more concerned if it was uh, uh, one of those other investigations that directly impacts on people who've been donors to the Conservative Party, um, but I would be surprised if it was political, other than the fact that, of course, GSK and Rolls-Royce are two of the corporations that are likely to be hit by the current government's Brexit debacle. And it might be felt that, you know, if you've already, if, underlined if, you've already, through your inaction and action and uh, general disarray, taken 20% off GSK's share price, then you probably oughtn't to prosecute it and take off another six. Um, so maybe... Uh, insofar as there's been any influence at all, and I've no evidence of that, I would say at a maximum it might be somebody somewhere saying, look, these companies are about to take a, a Brexit hit. Let's try and give them some some good news. But I'd be I'd, I'd be quite surprised. Um, it isn't the it isn't the 
British way, I don't think, for people like the director of the SFO to be influenced politically. And I know the answer to that is, uh, but you haven't got a British director of the SFO. But I, even if we haven't, I'd hope she behaves like one. Jay Rosen, do you have a question for uh, Jonathan? I have a two-parter, and you can choose to answer part one, part two, or, or no parts. So uh, uh, it looks like Lisa Ozofsky took office in, 2000, uh, in October of 2018, September. So she's been there for about six months or so. And my question about this, Jonathan, is, is she just cleaning house because there were bad cases left there? by David Green and his admin, and she's taking more of a, a U.S. perspective about if we don't have the facts, we can't make the case. So that's question number one. And then question number two, with regard to GSK, this almost seems to be the opposite end of the recent cognizant ruling that we just had, where the company seemed to get off, but they've indicted the execs. So I'm wondering if you can explain that through that lens as well. Yeah, I think I think that's really really is very interesting. I mean, I think the first uh, taking the first one first. I think we've been. Um, I mean, I mean, I think I, I think we've understood and we've talked about it uh, before in this group that there is something very different between getting a company to surrender to a DPA and and convicting individuals beyond all reasonable doubt. So I think that there, that there is a clear difference there. And I think that the SFO have been conscious for some time, perhaps even since they were founded, that getting a conviction in a complex fraud case or a complex bribery case, particularly against an individual, is not a walk in the park. Um, because uh, for various reasons, as, as I might mention before, my uh, degree thesis was on the inside workings of the jury room. And it, I, I'm exaggerating to make a point, but in a long-running fraud or a long-running bribery case, you basically get jurors who are interested in being on a jury or are not astute enough to get off one. And uh, you generally end up with what you might call the opera watching class. And I mean O-P-R-A-H rather than O-P-E-R-A. It's the O-P-E-R-A, generally speaking, that commit the offences and the O-P-R-A-H that judge them for the offences they've committed. And... As a result, it's often hard to get juries like that to follow the case. And we've had at least one incident where it was a difficult case to follow and the, the defendant talked extensively about his good charitable works. Now, I'm not suggesting that we overturn the conviction on that basis, I'm just saying, and it isn't a trial I was involved with, but looking from a distance in, I was always surprised uh, uh, that, uh, well, I was never surprised that that led to an acquittal. 
you've got lots and lots of complicated evidence, a jury that's not well-placed to understand it, and a guy who they see in the witness box who's been a benefactor for many years to various good causes. I think he's always going to be, I mean, obviously he's innocent because the jury have said so, but it's always going to be difficult to get a conviction against an individual in that environment. And we've also seen in cases like Dardala that um, because of the way in which evidence is obtained in an internal investigation by some law firms, wrong to single them out, but often in these cases, US law firms, rather than those that understand the UK system better, then it's difficult to get even get that evidence in front of the jury. And we know in Dardala that the, that the judge said it wasn't safe to do so. So I, I think there's always going to be a difficulty prosecuting individuals, particularly where the evidence comes from an internal investigation. You know, we've had cartel fixing cases uh, that the SFO have tried uh, to run and others have tried to run uh, that, 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 that have similarly struggled. And then, and then I uh, agree with you that it's it's some respects similar and some respects different from uh, cognizant. I mean, I think in I, I, I think there are similarities in terms of things like the company getting uh, credit for its compliance program. In in, in both cases, I think the SFO uh, gave Rolls Royce credit almost for self-reporting, which is a bit odd because it wasn't a self-report. But they gave them that credit saying that, you know, once we knocked on your door, then you treated it, you gave us a lot of cooperation. You know, you they got credit, perversely, for the 30 million documents that possibly didn't ever lead <laughs> to any individual culpability. So that's slightly odd. And in GSK, of course, GSK got credit uh, in, in this non-prosecution non for the compliance measures that they've put in place since these episodes, which, which are regarded as being best in class. So I think in some respects, there are some, some parallels with, with, with Cognizant as well. Great. Thank you, Jonathan. Matt Kelly, uh, you have been a business reporter, uh, editor of a business magazine uh, in this space for many, many years. And I really wanted to ask you about the SEC imbroglio with Elon Musk. It uh, really started, uh, I'm not sure how, start, how long ago it started, but uh, the most recent spat was around a tweet he sent out in July. Uh, he agreed to some sanctions in the form of a, a fine and penalty of $20 million and uh, to play nice and have his tweets um, reviewed by the company and or its counsel before they went out. And that apparently has not happened. Uh, now the Securities and Exchange Commission has gone into U.S. Uh, federal court and asked that must be held in contempt for some subsequent tweets he made earlier in February. What uh, does all of this mean for the SEC? Um, and have you ever seen anything like this? Um, no. I have to say I'm 
I'm not sure whether I want to applaud Elon Musk because he's the only person in compliance and securities law that we all talk about by his first name, Elon, like Cher or Madonna. Um, it's quite a feat to do that in our line of work. Uh, on the other hand, this is, to my thinking, and probably to most good governance and good compliance people, this is the most irritating sort of case I have seen in a long time. Uh, and it does raise some interesting questions for the SEC. It puts them in a very awkward position. Uh, and it's just juicy stuff. So so let's dive into what has happened here. Um, as you said, Tom, so this all started when Elon last year sent out a mysterious tweet saying uh, funding approved at 420 a share, implying that he was going to take Tesla Motors private. Uh, he was the founder of the company. He is the largest shareholder of the company and the CEO. Uh, spoiler alert, that statement for um, going private at 420, funding secured, that was not true. Uh, no funding was secured and the company did not go private. So the SEC took him to court. And in September, uh, and it gets a little bit convoluted here, but this is an important sequence of events for what just happened last week. Um, the SEC was ready to settle with Elon Musk that he would step aside from being chairman of Tesla for two years, and that's it. And his lawyers said, okay, we'll agree to that settlement. And then Elon himself said, no way, I am not agreeing to this. I am gonna fight the SEC until the last dog dies. And then he told his board, either you side with me on this or uh, I'm going to resign. And the board caved. So the SEC was ready to crucify him and have him fired as CEO for that um, intransigence rather than just a nice civil settlement. Uh, and then everybody panicked. And then over a weekend, they agreed that there would be a new settlement where um, Elon would be removed as chairman for three years, not two. He would pay a $20 million penalty, not nothing. And he would keep the CEO title, but the company would hire two independent board directors and adopt a, a policy where they would pre-approve his tweets, not necessarily the board, but Securities Council would. Uh, and then the company also had to pay $20 million. And that was the sexy stuff of the big mess that happened last October or September. You might remember that. So now what happened last week is that Elon uh, fired off another tweet saying that Tesla production could hit around 500,000 cars this year. Then several hours later, he backtracked and said, oh, Actually, I meant that by the end of this year, we might be producing cars at a rate that, if annualized, would equal 500,000. Because everybody was saying, this is baloney. You're not going to make 500,000 cars. You know, what happened to maybe 350 or 400,000? Uh, and Tesla has had various other issues that make a lot of people think that it is um, uh, both accountingly challenged and perhaps managerially not well run. Uh, just yesterday, Tesla put out a announcement that said, we're going to get rid of all of our retail shops and lay off all the retail salespeople. Sales will only now be online for its new Tesla 3 car that is supposedly going to come out someday. Who knows when? Um, so there's a, a whole lot of mess here. And uh, because of that tweet, uh, the general counsel of Tesla, who had been on the job for two months, uh, he left was he fired? Did he resign? We don't really know. Um, but he left to go back to the law firm that he came from. Um, all sorts of shenanigans around here. And so the SEC went back to federal court and said, 
Elon is in violation of this order, so hold him in contempt of court. And he has until March 11th to uh, file and reply about why he should not be held in court. Fun fact, Elon has hired the lead prosecutor of the Enron case to be his defense attorney in this matter, uh, John Houston, who is uh, also representing him on some other securities law litigation that Elon also has. So here we are. Um, Is this harmless or not? That's one big question. And a lot of people would actually say, Elon can say whatever he wants in his tweets because everybody who buys Tesla stock already knows that this is Elon being Elon. And you sign up for that when you buy the stock. And he's got a lot of fans who know all that already. So where's the harm? I don't like that line of thinking because, number one, it makes a special exception for compliance and good governance. And it's supposed to apply equally to all companies. And number two, that is only true in as much as retail investors are directly buying the stock themselves. And that is not the case. Two of the largest shareholders at Fidelity are Fidel, um, at Tesla are Fidelity and their T. Rowe Price in 401k holdings. So everybody listening to this, everybody on our calls, including me and everyone else, do you know all the stocks that your retirement portfolio owns? Because I don't. I'm willing to bet you don't. And I'm willing to bet at least some of us own Tesla stock and have no idea that we do. While we are marveling at this uh, nitwit running around on Twitter, uh, pumping out news about Tesla stock. So am I signing up for it or not? You know, there are so many filters in institutional stock ownership that it's reasonable to say a lot of investors don't know that they own Tesla stock and are subject to the whims of uh, Elon Musk. And, you know, I hate to say it, but I think that this is probably a small number of devout Tesla and Elon Musk fans who buy his stock individually and who make a big uh, show about how brilliant they think he is. Many more of us think that Tesla is sketchy at best in a house of cards at worst and may not even know that we do own the stock somewhere in our retirement portfolios. Um, So I think that there really is some sort of harm that may be happening here where the SEC has to step in and say, securities laws are there for a reason. You have to obey them. So this is what I like about what can the SEC do now. And it's it's an interesting case because clearly Elon Musk hates the SEC. He has called them, I think, the short seller enrichment commission. He said that in a tweet. He has 24 million followers and how many more retweeted after that. He has needled them constantly. So what are we supposed to do with this intransigent CEO of a publicly traded company who thinks securities law should not apply to him? Um, and the SEC in a, really has somewhat neutered itself already because of policy statements that the chairman, Jay Clayton, has made in the past. So he has already said long before Elon ever came along that maybe monetary penalties against a company for corporate executive misconduct Maybe they're not really a good fit because that only penalizes the shareholders by taking cash out of the company that they own. Okay, but then last September, Clayton had put out a statement saying you can't necessarily remove a CEO from his or her leadership role because if that person is so instrumental to the value of the company, then sacking them for misconduct harms shareholders. Like, I don't agree with that. But all right, if we're not penalizing people, if we're not getting them fired because they can't do their job, like 
what actually would Jay Clayton recommend for a case like this? And it's interesting. Uh, I personally think that the SEC could bring uh, pressure to bear on the individual board directors at Tesla. They are the ones who are supposed to be overseeing their CEO, and they clearly are not doing it. They didn't do it last fall when uh, Elon said, you support me or I quit. So they caved. Uh, don't forget that the at Tesla has hired two independent directors, allegedly, to keep an eye on Elon Musk. And now he's still violating this policy. So in that case, independent directors who just joined, what are you getting paid for? Because you ain't doing the job. Uh, there is certainly that argument that could be made. Um, it's fascinating. Now, for all the compliance officers who are listening, you know, how does this relate to you? Fair point to say I'm not entirely sure many of you will encounter this situation in your career. Uh, I think this is a rare problem, but when it does happen, it's a big problem uh, that doesn't really have many easy solutions. Uh, it is typical of more of these tech-founded or you know, larger-than-life CEO founders who are CEO, president, founder, chairman of the board, all of this, in theory – Mark Zuckerberg would fit this profile, except he seems to have a lot of brains about at least some of his securities law obligations. Uh, Jeff Bezos would fit this profile, but they're good conduct, generally speaking, CEOs. They're, they're not thumbing their eye at the world like Elon Musk is, or thumbing their nose or flipping them off. Um, this is somewhat akin to like Steve Wynn at Wynn Resorts and his misconduct because the board never hold him accountable. It's like Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos and the fraud she masterminded because the board never held her accountable. It remains to be seen whether Tesla will someday live up to all of its Elon hype. And there are many people who could put out good arguments about why no, it will not. And I personally, I think it's two steps short of a more thorough probing by the SEC on its accounting. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, this is about a man who is not capable of running a large public company and a board that is not capable of overseeing him and an SEC that has already taken several enforcement measures off the table to rein him in. So like, we're kind of stuck here. What are we going to do? Um, I think it's a terrible precedent. I think the SEC should drop the hammer on him. But that's where we are with Elon at the moment. It's a fascinating case. Jonathan, do you have a question for Matt? Yeah, I um, I agree with you, Matt. I think it's I think it's really fascinating. I mean, I can remember back in the day. I think Whole Foods had a similar episode as well, and I agree with you that it's often the sort of founder and foundational figures in um, in, in organisations that can cause the most challenges. And I think there's also, in some respects, an odd parallel with with Jeff Bezos as well, that that no compliance officer, however brilliant, can be with an executive like that 247365. And mm -hmm. and whether it's commenting on share price or whether it's you know compromising your own security or your reputation or or or, or whatever, um, then then the best we can do somehow is 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 it is is impose or suggest or train uh, regulations and uh, and the environment and and in some respects that's why the authorities have to act here because he's done something he shouldn't have done 
He's been taken to task for it. He's promised not to do it again, and he has. Um, yeah. But my slightly flippant question is, has he behaved badly enough on social media yet to be a legitimate presidential candidate? Um, I, so he actually would be disqualified from running, thank the Lord, uh, because he is not a native-born U.S. citizen. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have a couple of thoughts here. Uh, number one, as much as I don't like what Elon Musk is doing as CEO of a publicly traded company, I, I do think Elon is, has a tremendous talent. Uh, it's just a talent that is best used in the private company world. Uh, he could easily be, you know, founder and vice chairman of the company or run his own private SpaceX as he colonizes Mars or something like that. There are many other avenues where I think his talents would be enormously useful, but they are not suited for public company obligations, which are higher because he's playing with other people's money. And not all of them may know that. The other thought that I did have since you mentioned Twitter is and a compliance officer can't be somebody with someone 24 hours a day. That is absolutely true on the practical basis. I don't even think you would necessarily want every single tweet to be um, ratified by compliance counsel every single time because then it's just going to be boring. And, you know, Twitter is a bit of a spontaneous uh, medium and that's OK, but it requires good judgment on the behalf of the executive to make that work. And he does not have what we define as good judgment in the public company realm. He's got, I mean, he's very funny in Twitter some days. Uh, he's off the rails and other times on Twitter. And if you were a private company CEO, I wouldn't really care. But he is what he is. And we have some rules for reasons, folks. And sooner or later, this is going to blow up. Um, we don't even know necessarily, is he putting out these tweets to short his own stock? You know, do, do we know exactly what he is doing in the hours in between tweet A and tweet B and who owns what shares and what wink and a nod he may have had? I don't think he's done that. But unless somebody can prove it, the suspicion and the potential are there. Like there's nine million ways you could make this a mess. And Elon is working through them with impressive speed. <laughs> So, Matt, I have a question for you. Uh, yesterday in the Financial Times, they had an article uh, discussing this matter, and there was a quote that uh, particularly struck me. Yep. Uh, an unnamed former SEC official said, quote, the agency has actually revealed here how completely toothless it is, end quote. If uh, First of all, I would ask you for commentary on that quote, but then further, if uh, this continues to play out, does it really uh, demean and belittle uh, not only the name and reputation of the SEC, but its actual ability to enforce U.S. securities laws? Um, th that's a very valid point to raise. Uh, I mean, clearly, you know, Elon is not saying, you're wrong. I didn't really mean it this way. He's not parsing things. He's not trying to fish his way out of a jam that he might have made. He has gone on record before saying, I disagree with the SEC's ability to regulate me. He's mocked them publicly on Twitter, you know, the short seller exchange commission. He said that uh, he has uh, respect for judges, but not respect for the SEC. Like he is clearly repudiating the whole premise that they can govern what he does. So 
what would you do with that if if this were your child? And so many times I boil misconduct and compliance issues down to a family analogy. Like if your son or daughter repudiates your authority and says, I'm not going to go to school today, like you have to take him to school. I don't care if I have to drag my kid in by his arm. I'm going to have to do it because that is what it is. And you can't let that precedent be set. Um I do fault the Jay Clayton to some extent because he defanged himself here when he said penalties don't make much sense. Removing an executive don't make much sense. Well, then, okay, what makes sense? Because you got to do something because you have this guy running around saying, I don't think the SEC is going to do anything. And he's going to stick his fingers in his ears and stamp his feet right on their own for all the capital markets to see. I'm like, Yeah. If he does this and can get away with it, certainly other people may be tempted to get try something similar. Um, Really, the ones who could most easily exercise control here, I think, from a legal perspective, would be the board. They would be have the legal authority to fire him if they wanted. So if the SEC is looking for a solution, we, we might point out that the board isn't doing anybody any favors either. And the board is not, frankly, doing its job of keeping this loose cannon uh, a bit more tied down. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed part two, our special two-part episode of the Cohen Testifies edition of Everything Compliance. I hope you will check out part one if you have not done so. It was posted two weeks ago. The Everything Compliance Gang will be back in a couple of weeks to talk about the topics of the day. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at corderycompliance.com, Matt Kelly at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com, Mike Volkoff at mvolkoff at the volkofflawgroup.com, and Jay Rosen at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Everything Compliance is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. Check out the rest of our shows at thecompliancereport.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.